Father, just hear the silent cry of our hearts just now as we ask that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. We cling to the promise that where two or three are gathered together in your name, that you are right here. We pray that you would show up in our thoughts, in our hearing, that we would hear your voice speaking clearly to us through your word, that it would arrest our attention, and that it would lead us to seek you more wholeheartedly than ever before. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was the end of a semester at the seminary. I had gone through the semester. I'd been doing well in all of my classes. As as I got to test week, I printed out the test schedule. And as I looked at my schedule, there was shock and horror in my mind. Because I suddenly saw that there on the schedule was a test for a class that I didn't recognize. And I began to do some research and I was looking into it. And I, I, I suddenly realized that I had registered for this class at the beginning of the semester. And here we were at the end of the semester. Final was two days away. And I had not been to a single class. How could that have happened? I, the following two days, I was just frantically cramming, doing everything possible, and I remember the fear that was in my heart as I walked into that classroom to take that test that I'd studied for in two days. And then I woke up. Have you guys ever had that dream before? How many of you had that dream? I've had it so many times. It's come again and again, but that fear is so real. Even though it's a dream, it's, it's as if it were reality. I can only imagine the fear in this man's heart. It must have been an even greater fear, an even more intense fear. Go with me to Matthew chapter 25. There we see a story that Jesus tells, and the man in this story that is especially highlighted is a man whose heart must have been filled with a terror that we have never known. Matthew chapter 25 comes immediately after Matthew chapter 24. And what do we find in Matthew 24? What are some of the things that you remember being in Matthew 24? What was it? Anybody know what's in Matthew 24? You can even peek. You can turn a page over, look at Matthew 24, and you can see what's there. (laughs) Sign of the end of the age. The disciples had come to Jesus and they said, you said the temple is not going to stand anymore, so what is the sign of this? And what's the sign of the end of the age? And what's the sign of your coming? And then Jesus launches into this, this beautiful sermon and this challenging sermon, this sermon that causes us to... Take life seriously. Begins to talk about how there would be wars and rumors of wars. There would be pestilences. There would be all these different things indicating that the end was coming. And then as he gets towards the end of chapter 24, he says, but but no one knows the actual day or the hour. No one knows for sure. So you need to watch. Then in the beginning of chapter 25, he gives us this parable. The parable of the ten virgins. This parable that reveals to us the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit. In the last days, this is going to be absolutely essential that we have been seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So praise God that we can go on this journey together. I hope you've been blessed in the life groups going and praying together, studying together about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, about being gifted with the Holy Spirit and the special gifts that He wants to give to us. 
At the end of that parable, notice what Jesus says in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Watch therefore. You need to be aware because you don't know the day or the hour. Jesus is coming. You need to watch. And then immediately after this, he launches into a parable that teaches us how to watch. You know, Matthew 24 is there and it creates all of this urgency, but then it also reveals to us that there's a waiting time. And we're in that waiting time, aren't we? Sometimes we're wondering how long until Jesus comes back. This movement started back in the 1800s, and here we are in the 2000s, 2017. Is Jesus coming? And what do we do? Matthew chapter 25 reveals how we should live in a time of delay. A time when Jesus seems to have be holding back from coming soon like He said He's coming. Verse 14, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Who would this man traveling into a far country be? This is Jesus giving a parable about himself that he was about to go to his father's house to prepare that kingdom for us, to prepare those mansions for us, to prepare a place for us. And then he was going to come back for us. But then he gives this picture of saying that when I go, I'm going to give my goods to you. You remember Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. It says that he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he has given gifts to men. This is a parable that goes from the parable of the ten virgins that shows us the importance of the Holy Spirit. Now we're seeing in this parable the importance of the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us. Both those that might be, seem natural and both those that may seem supernatural, but all of them the ways in which the Holy Spirit gifts us. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now as we look at this, it may be helpful to realize the value of what we're talking about here. You know, sometimes we read Bible stories and the, the, the wording of the money is, it doesn't make sense to us and so we don't really understand the type of gift that was given to this, these individuals. So a talent was 6,000 days wages or 6,000 denarius. So think back in your life, think back to 6,000 days worth of work. My guess is if you're under the age of 40 that you have not worked nearly 6,000 days because 6,000 days of work is 18 to 20 20 plus years of full-time labor for one talent. So of all of these servants, the one who got just the one talent, he got basically half of a man's working life worth of capital and the master has entrusted it to him. 
You see, this isn't just like he handed him $10 and went off on a long journey. But he's handing him millions of dollars possibly and going off on a long journey. So he goes off on this long journey, but you know, grasping the value of something is really essential in our lives. There was a guy by the name of Stan Caffey. Stan Caffey went to a yard sale and he found this interesting scroll of paper and it was actually a copy of the Declaration of Independence. And he saw this and he thought, well, this is fascinating. I like this. I want to have this in my garage. So he took it home. He bought it for a few dollars, took it home, and he put it on his wall near where he worked on his bikes in his garage. And years went by, 10 years went by, and he got into a relationship. And this relationship got pretty serious, and eventually they got married, and about a year into the marriage, they said, all right, we've got to condense our stuff. We've got to get rid of some things. So they began going through the house piece by piece, deciding, what do we get rid of? What do we keep? Then they got to the garage, and they began going through the garage. You know, that was the man's territory, so there were some intense discussions maybe going on. But then they get to this scroll of the Declaration of Independence. And Stan says, I want to keep that. His wife said, no, that's going. No, I want to keep that. No, it's going. Well, she won the argument. And so she took this scroll of the Declaration of Independence to the thrift store, the local thrift store. I praise God for our thrift store here, and I hope that one of you will give a Declaration of Independence like this to our thrift store. Because as she took it in there, she said, you know, this looks pretty old. You guys might want to get this evaluated to see if this might be worth something because it it looks pretty old she gave it to them and time went on and a few years later they suddenly saw this news article about a guy who had gone into a thrift store named michael and he had gone into this thrift store and he had bought this declaration of independence for two dollars and 48 cents and come to find out In 1820, I believe it was, I think it was Quincy Adams had ordered another printing of the Declaration of Independence, and this was a rare copy of the Declaration of Independence. They immediately took it to an auction, and the starting bid for it was $200,000. $200,000, but it sold for $477,000. When Stan heard this, you know what he said? said, well, it's a good thing I gave it to the thrift store because otherwise it would still be on my wall. I just didn't know the value of it. Sometimes things in our life might be more valuable than we realize. And here you find a man who is given something of incredible value. He's given this talent that's worth 18 years of work. The master entrusts it to him, gives it to him. And what does he do? But he goes and he buries it in a hole, in the ground. Now this was a common way to preserve things. Sometimes they'll be digging, and that's why in archaeological digs they'll find very valuable finds because people would hide their money, they would hide their treasure. So he said, I'm going to bury this so that eventually when he comes back I can return it to him and it will be safe. So we continue in the story, and I think this is the part where it gets interesting. It goes on to say, Verse 20, uh, sorry, we're in verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Can you imagine that moment? 
He's coming back. Maybe the messenger comes ahead and says, hey, by the way, the master came back and he's like, oh no, where did I bury it? And he immediately goes frantically running out to the field and he, he's digging maybe in one spot and he can't find it. He goes to another spot. He's digging, digging, digging. Oh good, there it is. I preserved it. I found it. Okay. But in his heart is fear. Fear that his master has come back. Fear of knowing what his master was like. Continue on in verse 20. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. Now, we don't grasp how much wealth this really was. How much time must have passed by in order for them to have gained this much wealth. The guy who had two talents already had as much as he could have earned his, his whole life as a day laborer. And now he's gained two more talents. It's doubled. The man who had five now has ten, which is you know, five times the amount that he could have earned in his lifetime is what he's returning to his master as the capital, as, as the, the return on investment. But then, in verse 24, it says, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is an intense parable. Jesus has something He wants to communicate with His last day people, with you and I who are sitting in the pew at Templeton Hills Seventh-day Adventist Church. He has something He desperately wants to get across to us. And I pray that we don't miss it this morning. I pray that I don't miss it this morning because I don't want to be in that spot. How about you? I don't want it to come down to the end and Him to say, okay, you brought back what I gave to you, but was my kingdom increased? Did anything more happen? Because we have this assurance that He has ascended on high and that He has led captivity captive and that He has given gifts to men. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 says that He gives to each one the manifestation of the Spirit for the profit of all. Each and every one of us have gifts that have been given to us by God. I mean, you could just let alone the fact that you and I are here breathing, that our hearts are beating. Remember last week we checked and made sure we had pulses? Those things are gifts from God. The time that you have, that is a gift from God. 
living in this free country of America, having the, the wealth and the resources that we have, these are all gifts from God that He has bought for us at an infinite price. He gladly has done it. He went to the cross for you and I because He wanted to lavish these gifts on us. He wanted for us to have life. And so He laid down His own life. He valued your life more than His own life. That's what the cross tells us. And, and so He's given us these gifts. And, and we looked a couple weeks ago at Christ's Object Lessons. It says this, page 327, Not more surely is the place prepared for us in heavenly mansions than is the special place designated on earth where we are to work for God. So in this parable, we see clearly that every single one of us has a place in God's work. Is that clear? This represents the kingdom of God in totality. And there are three different individuals here. Some have been given a lot, and some a little bit, and some a little bit less. But all are to work for the Master, right? But who is focused on in this parable? Is it the one who has a lot of the talents and a lot of the abilities, who's, who's there doing a lot for the kingdom of God? No. It's the one who feels like, you know, all I got was one talent. I really don't have that much to offer anyway. So you know what? I'm just going to hide it. I'm just going to preserve it. I'm just going to keep it to myself. And you notice that the master was gone for a long time. And, and so what do you think that the person with two talents, the person with five talents, what do you think that they had to do over those years while the master was gone in order to double their income? Or double the capital. They had to invest it. It says that they traded. How much work do you think that that took on a daily basis? I mean, they weren't going about their own business anymore. They're, they had this investment to do for the master. And they were working. They were spending their time with these five talents, these two talents, multiplying them, trading with them, working with them in order for it to grow. If you've ever invested, you know that it's not necessarily an easy thing, that money doesn't just multiply automatically. They had work to do, but this man with just one talent, how long does it take to go and dig a hole, to place your talent in the hole, and to go away and wait for the master? There's no, not much work involved, right? He's preserving it. He's keeping from doing anything bad to it. He's guarding the, the, the edges of his life but then he's keeping all of his time for himself. He's keeping all of his effort for himself. And he's busy all of that time working on his own ideas, his own plans, his own income. And the whole time, he's neglecting the master's business. And Jesus reveals that this is a serious problem. And I think that there is a reason here that is far deeper than we normally see. Because we could walk out of here and we could say, okay, all right, I better get more involved because this is scary. I don't want to be the one that's with weeping and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness. So I better get busy. I better start working hard. I better start making sure that I'm doing things for God's kingdom. But I believe that there's something bigger that Jesus is trying to picture to us. Look again at what the servant says to Jesus in verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. He's so passionate about this feeling about who the Master is that that he uses two different illustrations. He says, you reap where you haven't sown and and you gather where you haven't scattered any seed. You're a, a selfish, unfair Master. Do you see the problem? The root cause here of why this man is hoarding his talents and going about his life living in a selfish way is because that is who he believes God to be. And it's the same thing in our lives. If I believe that God is a harsh, exacting judge who just wants to take from me, then I am going to do everything I can to hang on to my stuff to protect it from God. But if I believe that God is a generous giving Master like Jesus has said that He is. Luke 12.32, Jesus Himself said, It is My Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. He delights to give to us. If I believe that, then I am going to be like those with the other talents and I'm going to be freely giving because I have freely received. This man believed that the Master is harsh. He's a hard man. He, he gathers where he, he hasn't even put seed. But what does he also go on to say in verse 25? And I was afraid. You know, as Seventh-day Adventists, I praise God that we recognize that Jesus is coming soon. I praise God that, that we know what's coming on this planet and that we have a warning message to give to the world. There is a time of trouble coming. There are plagues that are going to fall. Read the book of Revelation. Study the book of Revelation. This world is facing a time of trouble like we've never seen before. Everybody can recognize it. I mean, look at the hurricane season. Look at the fire season. Look at the earthquakes that we're seeing. We can look at these things, and Jesus pointed these things out in Matthew 24, didn't He? All of these things. But right after that, what did He say to them? But don't be troubled. This isn't the end yet. Don't be troubled by these things. God does not want you to serve Him out of fear of what is coming on this planet. I love what it says in the book, Signs of the Times, or in the periodical Signs of the Times. I believe this is essential. If you walk away with nothing else today, it's also in your study guide. Pull it out of, out of your bulletin if you like. Pin it to your, your wall. Put it on your mirror. This is essential for our relationship with Christ in order for us to be able to stand in the end. It says this, The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. And, and these things do stir us, don't they? When we see massive hurricanes, when we see earthquakes, when we see all these things happening, it stirs us, oh, I better be in church. I better make sure that I'm, I'm following God. But we see this happen throughout our country. After 9-11, churches were packed for a little while, and then people left. Fear is not a lasting motivation in our lives. Fear is not a healthy motivation in our lives. This should not be the great motive with us, for it savors of selfishness. 
Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God should be held before us that we may be compelled to right action through fear? It ought not to be so. We shouldn't have to be terrified in order to give our all to Jesus. And it goes on to explain, so so what is it then? How is it that we should be compelled to serve Jesus? What should be our motivation? What should get me up in the morning at 6 a.m. to come to the parking lot, to cut down trees, to work for His kingdom, to to build garden boxes, to volunteer at the school, to come and work on my Sabbath school class, to come and fix food on Fridays, whatever it is that God is calling you to do, to work at the thrift store. What should be the motivation? Should it be being terrified about the end that we're facing? No. No. It goes on to say this, Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. He proposes to be our friend, to walk with us through all the rough pathways of life. Jesus, the majesty of heaven, proposes to elevate to companionship with Himself those who come to Him with their burdens, their weaknesses, and their cares. And really, what is more motivating than friendship. What's more motivating than love? I have made the biggest and most radical changes in my life because of love. When I got married, my life completely changed. And I'm happy for it because of love. Things that I never thought I'd want to do, I've done because of love. I've witnessed it in my wife's life. I've seen as she has become friends with different people. You know, in high school, I don't know if I've shared this story before, but in high school, she became friends with uh, one of the teachers, and, and it became kind of one of her favorite teachers. And he would actually uh, take the kids out on wilderness survival trips to teach them how to survive in the wilderness. Now, if you know my wife, she's not super into going out backpacking and getting really dirty. I enjoy those things. And she's okay with those things, but it's not her favorite thing to do. Hiking isn't one of her favorite things, so I, she, she's willing to do it with my family because she's chosen to love my family, so we'll go on vacation and we'll hike. But it's not her favorite thing to do. But when I met her, she had more backpacking gear than I had. In fact, I now use the backpack that she had from that class because she really appreciated this teacher. They had a friendship. And she supported his class. She was always there in the wilderness survival classes. Friendship has motivation in our lives, doesn't it? You like to show up when a friend invites you to do something. It's no longer a work. It's no longer difficult when it's about friendship. And that is the compelling factor that Jesus wants for you and I to have when it comes to using our talents. He's given us time. He's given us treasure. He's given us wealth. He's given us things that we can use for His glory. He's gifted us with supernatural gifts. But as long as we're not friends with Him, we're going to hoard those things to ourselves. We're going to guard the edges. We'll give as little as possible, but we're not going to be all in. But when we fall radically in love with Jesus, we'll give our all. You look at this person in this parable. He held back because he thought that God was harsh, because God was not a giving God. But look at the picture of God in this parable. If you jump down in verse 28, it says, Therefore, 
take the talent from him, that's the one with the one talent, and give it to him who has ten talents. So who is walking away with talents? Is the master the one that walks away with the ten talents? No, it's the ones who are part of his kingdoms, the ones that are, are working for him. He says, here, you have it all. It's all yours. You see how giving he is? He's wanting to give. He's wanting to bless. But if we shut ourselves up, if we harden our, our hearts, and if we selfishly cling to our stuff, to our time, if we hold it back from him, then in the end, he's going to let us choose to be separated from life itself. Just, just to put a seal on our own choice to turn away from him. You know, this is what the great controversy has been about from the very beginning. It's fascinating as you look at this. How many people are in this story? How many people represent the church of God in this story? There's three people here, right? So what fraction of the people are successful in following Christ? Two-thirds, right? Okay, my math isn't very good either. All right, but how many were not faithful? One-third, okay? So one-third didn't follow after him. One-third said, he's unfair. One-third said, he is selfish. One-third said, I don't want a part of his kingdom. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Have you read Revelation chapter 12, where it says that there was a great dragon in heaven. Michael and his angels, they fought. And this dragon, he swept one-third of the angels from heaven. A third of the angels bought the law that he's harsh. He's, he's unfair. He's selfish. And as long as we have that picture, we too will buy into Satan's kingdom. That's what the great controversy is all about. But as long as we take the attitude of Jesus and we say, Lord, freely I have received, freely I will give. We've got to first receive. We've first got to open ourselves up to the love of God. We only love because he first loved us. But as we allow that love to penetrate our hearts, it will compel us to give radically, to give beyond what we thought possible, to give in ways that will make a lasting difference. In West Africa, there was a girl by the name of Vitalina Mendez Morera. I'll put a picture of her up on the screen. She was 19 years old when she had her first child. As she was there having her first child, there was complications and the baby was okay, but something happened to her leg. In fact, both legs developed an infection afterwards and she wasn't able to go home from the hospital for nine months. The infection began to spread throughout her legs. There wasn't very good medical care there. And eventually they had to amputate both of her legs. If anybody had reason to be bitter against God, to say God is harsh, God is unfair, God is an unjust God, it was Vitalina. No legs. But you know what began happening? Vitalina could uh, be even more angry because as she got home after nine months, her husband had apparently gotten bored and had found another woman. So he would come home for a couple days and then he would be gone with his other significant other. If anybody had reason to see God as harsh, as unfair, it was Vitalina. But somebody came over to her house. It was an elderly Seventh-day Adventist woman, and she began to make friends with Vitalina. 
And as she made friends with her, she noticed that it was impossible for her to be able to wash her own clothes because there you have to wash your clothes in the river. And so she said, Vitalina, I'll take your clothes and I'll wash them in the river. And she would take her clothes each day and she'd take them out to the river and she'd wash them and she'd bring them back. It, it was something small, but something that she could do. You remember last week we talked about what is in your hand? What do you have to offer? Jesus can use that. This elderly woman, all she knew how to do was to take her clothes and to wash them. And day by day, eventually, even that was taken away from her. Because the doctor told her, if you keep walking into that river, you're going to get an infection, and so you need to stop walking into that filthy water. So she told her church family about it. And the church family, they all came together and they all began going over to Vitalina's house to grab her clothes and to take them to the river and to wash them for her. And Vitalina was, was so uh, amazed by this, but she was embarrassed by it and she said, I'm going to start hiding my clothes. So she would hide almost all of her clothes in the back bedroom and only leave a couple out for them to go and wash. And they'd say, there must be more clothes. She says, no, sorry, that's all the clothes I've got. She didn't understand what, what drove these people to love her like that. So they would take the little clothes that she had and they'd wash them. But then one day they came back and they said, there's got to be more clothes. And they began searching through her house. And they found in the back room this massive pile of dirty clothes. And they said, ah, here they are. And they took them and they washed them in the river. And then they said, Vitalina, do you want to hear about the Bible? Guess what her reply was? You would think so, yes, at that point. But actually she said, no, I, I don't want to know about God. You see, if anybody had reason to think that God was unjust and unfair, it was Vitalina. She didn't want to hear about God, but they just kept washing her clothes. They kept loving her. And then one day there was a, a prophecy seminar and they, they came and they gave an invitation to her. They said, hey, come, our, our pastor's doing something special at our church. And they just gave her a simple invitation and she came to church and she was there night after night. And she began to realize the true character of God. She began to recognize a God of love who hadn't designed her life to be like this. She recognized the great controversy that we were in. And at the end of that series, she was baptized and accept Jesus. But what does Vitalina have to offer? She doesn't even have legs. How could she possibly do anything for Jesus? If anybody has an excuse not to use their talents, it would be Vitalina. But you know what she did? She immediately called her friends and her neighbors to come over to her house. And she said, look at me. Look at how God is taking care of me. Look at how he's taught me to sew. Because she'd prayed one day and, and had asked God to, to, to help her to be able to provide for herself. And she had started sewing clothes. She said, look at how, how God has preserved my life. And look at how he's blessed me. And seven people were baptized. She started a Bible study group. And before long, 40 more people were baptized. It became a problem in this town because they didn't have enough money to buy land in order to build a church. So Vitalina said, no problem. Just do it in front of my front porch. Build a building right in front of my house. Build a church there. Because she had found a God that she was in love with. And that church, she says, she wakes up every day and she's so happy to see that church there on her property. She's so happy each Sabbath to see happy people worshiping Jesus. And she said, this is the secret of bringing people to Jesus. Friendship. Friendship. It's about friendship with Him, and it's about friendship with other people. 
It's about a relationship. That's why Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Love must compel us. This is what compels Vitalina. Vitalina's favorite Bible verse is Matthew 6 and verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added unto you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be this servant with a one talent who saw God as harsh, who said that God is selfish, and who held back from God his own. But I want to be the one who loves God so much that I give back out of a cheerful heart. How about you? I don't know what it is that God's calling you to today, but I want you to seriously contemplate in your own heart. Ask Him, what is it that's holding me back? And what are the things that I might be holding back? What are the boundaries that I'm setting? You notice that the focus is on the the one talented person, the person who feels like they don't have anything to offer, who says, I'll just go to church and I'll sit there and I'll walk out quickly and nobody will notice. But that's the one Jesus is appealing to. Please, you've got to be involved in the kingdom of God. It's got to be everybody. I praise God for everybody who does come to work peace, who does get involved in this church. And this church is a very involved church. But the heart of Jesus is breaking for the one, the two, who are still holding back because they don't have this picture of a loving God. They're not compelled by the love of Christ. So as you go from this place today, I just want to encourage you to seriously evaluate your love relationship with Jesus. Say, God, am I radically in love with you? Or am I holding things back? Say, will will you help me to fall more in love with you? Will you give me a heart to know you? Because I really want to love you. And when that takes place, Desire of Ages tells us that all true obedience comes from the the heart and that a, a will that is sanctified and ennobled will find its highest delight in doing God's service. God wants for your Christian experience to align at the place where pleasure and purity align. And that comes through a love relationship with Jesus. Friends, He wants for us to experience His joy. Because throughout eternity, at the end of this parable, He says, enter into the joy of the Lord. Those who had the five talents, the two talents, they were just preparing for what they're going to be doing throughout eternity. If we don't enjoy serving God now, what makes us think we'll enjoy it in heaven? We've got to get serious about our relationship with Jesus. We've got to ask Him to give us a heart to know Him and to love Him because this is essential for these last days. May it not be fear that drives us, but the attractive loveliness of Jesus. I'm going to close with prayer and I'm going to again just leave a time of silence just for you to ask in your own heart, what might I be holding back? And how can I have a deeper love for Jesus? Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we're here not because of any good works that we have done, but because of your righteousness and what you have done in laying down your life for us. But God, thank you for giving us gifts, so many treasures in our life. And here we are, Father, wanting the love of Christ to be what compels us and nothing else. So God, in the silence of our own hearts, we pray that you would teach us what we could practically do to enhance our relationship with you. Maybe it's to spend more time with you on a daily basis. Maybe it's to, 
to try out volunteering for something that we haven't tried before. Maybe it's to share you with somebody. And Father, we pray that you would reveal to us anything that we're holding back from you. We don't want to come down to the end and realize that we weren't really a part of your kingdom after all because it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. God, we don't want to reject your offer. You're pursuing us with wild abandon. Lord, we want our hearts to be open. So hear our cries in the silence of our hearts right now. Thank you, Father, that it's your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. We want to participate in that. We want to yield ourselves to you. Lord, we have nothing to offer. But at the same time, we want to give you our all, surrender our hearts to you, and allow you to use us for your glory. Because this is the joy of the Lord. Father, bless my friends as they go out this week to serve you, to live for you. Lord, fill them with joy in serving. Fill them with your love. May it be the love of Christ that compels us every step of the way. And if ever it's not, may we take a moment to reconsider and to redevelop that relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.